watchers in the fourth dimension. Oh, tempera. Oh, mores. Oh, so you want to fight? Oh. A new city will arise from the flames. Hello, and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And I'm so constantly outwitting the opposition, I tend to forget the delights and satisfaction of the arts, the gentle art of fisticuffs. Welcome back to This Is Season 2, Episode 4 of Doctor Who, The Romans. Behind the scenes, which is where we normally start, the story was actually recorded in the same recording block as The Rescue, meaning that for all intents and purposes, for production purposes, this was effectively The Rescue Parts 3 to 6, even though the storyline is completely separate. The original choice of having Richard Martin direct the story fell through, and Christopher Barry, who directed The Rescue, picked up the directorial duties for the second story running. Raymond Cusick carried on as the designer. The two significant changes behind the scenes vis-a-vis The Rescue were having story editor Dennis Spooner write the story, and he brought in Raymond Jones for the incidental music. So Spooner opted to write the story so he could help better define the new character of Vicky. And as he was credited as the writer, there was actually no on-screen story editor credit to avoid him being credited twice. This was Raymond Jones's first appearance as a composer on Doctor Who, and he'll return once more for season three's The Savages. Outside of this, he wasn't a prolific screen composer and seems to have stopped working entirely in around 1978. So, this time around, the quick summary is in my hands. After a month's vacation, Ian and Barbara learn the pitfalls of premarital sex when they are captured and enslaved. Naturally, they are split up, and Ian forms a bromance with a fellow slave, while Barbara gets Me Too'd by Randy Caesar Nero. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Vicky enjoy a jaunty trip to Rome where the Doctor finds everything absolutely hilarious, including the various attempts on his life. Vicky nearly poisons Nero, and together they give Nero the inspiration to burn down Rome. And who said that our intrepid travellers can't have an impact on history? So with that, we move into our discussion of episode one, The Slave Traders. So we pick up after last week's very little literal cliffhanger, where the TARDIS falls off a cliff. I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely love the bait and switch that we get at the very beginning of this episode. We see Ian seemingly looking unconscious, and he's just chilling. He eats his grapes. They're having a blast. We're so used to, like, immediately when there's an issue. At the beginning of an episode, they're unconscious, or there's a crash, and they're waking up. But no, it's just everything's happy and wonderful in, in ancient Rome. It successfully subverted my, my expectations. Those are dangerous words. They are. I was very confused. Just very, very confused. I was like, how did we get from one place to another? I thought it could have been similar to what happened in Keys of Marinus when in like, you know, 10 seconds, all of a sudden, Barbara is living the life of luxury. And I was just like, maybe it's that. I don't know. I will confess for a few seconds, I thought I had skipped an episode somehow. So it won't surprise you to learn that someone has, you know, obviously written a novel set in between the cliffhanger and where the story picks up, because that's what Doctor Who fans do. But I, I feel like the time jump works so well, because we don't have to worry about them getting to know and, and trust Vicky. They've been with her for a month at this point. Immediately, there's that relationship that's been built off screen. So we don't really have to worry about it. Yes and no. I really wanted to see Vicky and Barbara having a little bit of a clash after Barbara killing Vicky's pet and doing things that Vicky was just not a fan of in the previous uh, serial that 
I think it would have been fun to have seen a little bit more of that. And I so. think instead their relationships just become a bit more playful and bantery. We get that marketplace scene where they're looking at that fabric and Vicky's like, oh, I can't make a dress, but I was kind of hoping you would. There's actually you know? a really good shot when they're walking that way where the, the camera is actually moving and pulling back as they're going down the road there. I thought yeah. that was really well done. You know, another advantage of the time jump is that it it delays the plot conflict of, oh, no, we are separated from the TARDIS. We've got to get back to it to escape. Luckily, we don't have to deal with that plot conflict or that conflict till at least a little bit later. But at least it's not immediately our first concern, as has happened in many episodes prior to this one. Vicky was also very sad that they weren't off adventuring she you know she had that conversation with barbara and she's like i thought you promised me venture and all this other stuff and all of a sudden they're just sitting there sitting around not doing anything not even in rome oh to be young well and can i i'd like to point out the costumes not just in this particular episode but the entire serial are really uh, they look great absolutely great yeah, I, I believe that that was Daphne Dare, who I think was the costume designer for basically all of the first Doctor era, and she always does a phenomenal job. So we get that, the assassin in the bushes, right, with the ominous music. Did either of you think genuinely that he was going to attack Vicky and Barbara, or did you think he was there for someone else? I don't think that he was specifically targeting them. I thought he was targeting anybody. Yeah, I thought he might be a... A thief of some sort at first. And then, of course, you know, he eventually takes down Maximus Battalion. But, like, when he's first introduced, you don't know what he's looking for. So, while we're at the marketplace, we start getting that impression that these slave traders are kind of curious about Barbara and Vicky. Have you seen Barbara? <laughs> Everyone is interested in Barbara. Uh, she continues to be the eye candy of the episodes. And as you learn, I mean, she's obviously not a Gaul, and apparently Gauls slaves are make terrible quality. Well, you've got to love those Britons. We're quite good. I, I couldn't help but notice, but in the scene where the slave traders are bribing the fabric merchant, <laughs> the constant bribing, I could not help but think of the police squad old <laughs> joke about <laughs> about I was waiting for the fabric merchant to, uh, I was waiting for the, the slave traders to then get forgetful about what they were looking for, and then the Fabric merchant then bribing them to get them to remember. It was kind of like that after a while. Just so much. I'm, I'm going to put my cards on the table right now. I love this story and I love almost everything about it. And even that scene where the fabric merchant is reluctant to give more and, and unless they give more money. I just think that's outstanding. Like she's just holding her hand out. Like they ask her a question. She's like, give me more. <laughs> Another thing I really loved in this episode was... The four of them having dinner and the banter <laughs> they have is is just wonderful. It feels like this is the dynamic that I really want in the TARDIS crew. It's friendly. It's, you know, the relationship feels good. It's jokey. And then eventually the doctor just says, I need to get away for a couple of days from you. Suddenly that comes out of nowhere. But up until that point, I just love what's going on here. It feels like a like a family almost. I also just find it really fun and enjoyable that they're squatting, just just squatting. They seem yeah. so very comfortable. They seem so very comfortable when they have no when they have no idea when the person, the homeowner might return. 
<laughs> there was that. There was the point that the people in town were just like, yeah, we just assumed that they kind of hired these people to watch their house. Like they didn't really question these people who were staying in someone's in someone's place. That seemed really kind of strange to me. Uh, simpler times. When you could leave your front atrium unlocked. <laughs> and have four strangers just move in. <laughs> so speaking of that kind of bantery relationship, I really love it when the doctor calls Ian Chesterfield <laughs> and the doctor responds with, uh, not the doctor, Barbara responds with Chesterton and he just goes, oh, Barbara's calling you. <laughs> I just think that's so fantastic. In general, the the dynamic they all have, this is what it should have been from the beginning. Everything we had with Susan feels so off-key at this point. You know, as we all jokingly pointed out last season, was made to hit one note often, while Vicky is already in this episode being made into a more well-rounded character. Yeah. And then after the Doctor leaves, Ian and Barbara... Uh, <laughs> that is very boozed up and definitely post-coital. She was grooming him. <sighs> there's, there, there's just no way they hadn't just had sex. Oh my god. And then he goes into his little friends, Romans. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest. If you were in Roman times, would you not wander around quoting Julius Caesar? I certainly would. <laughs> of course you would. Wow, I think Julie just called me pretentious. <laughs> Absolutely. Did uh, anyone else find it interesting that when the doctor and Vicky came across the dead liar player, doctor seemed a lot more just excited and interested and like, oh, it's a free liar. <laughs> All right. <laughs> he got a free liar. He got to commit his favorite crime of identity theft. Uh, it's a big day. And he had that excellent quote of she keeps an eye on all the liars. <laughs> Talk about the double meaning. Uh, oh, that was beautiful. Oh, I was so excited about that. It's it's just wonderful. Like everything in this episode hits the right key for me. Absolutely everything. So at this point, we're left with the revelation that the Centurion wants Maximus Petullian dead, which is who the Doctor has stolen his identity. And Barbara and Ian have been split up after Ian gets bought on the slave market. And that brings us into episode two. All roads lead to Rome. We get another fight with the doctor. Another action scene. I love him in this. He's giggling his oh. way through it. His, oh, so you want to fight, do you? <laughs> it's magnificent. It's really, it's the most energetic and animated I think you anyone has ever seen the first doctor at this point. Does, does anyone feel that all through the story, he's just kind of showing off to Vicky? Oh, I got the feeling he was completely oh. just flirting with Vicky. Like, mad. <laughs> wow. Fair, but wow. Let's, okay, if you'll notice, in the previous episode, Susan, her job is basically to scream and get kidnapped. In this serial, mm -hmm. Vicky's job is just to tell the doctor how awesome he is. <laughs> Which, I think, That's... becomes the role of the companion. Exactly. <laughs> here on in. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So not only is the doctor fighting and he's doing all these quips and he's having so much fun. And then Vicky causes this man, poor man's death. I yeah, think death. the assassin. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know if he survived the fall. We don't know. Maybe it was on the first floor. I have no idea. And he's upset about it. The doctor is genuinely upset. He was like, oh, I had plans. I think he's more upset about the fact that he couldn't continue fighting than <laughs> the fact this guy's dead. The guy wasn't a very good assassin. I mean, face it, he got beaten up by an old man and a little girl. I mean, come on. And then the doctor claims to be one of the best fighters. I mean... That was my favorite line of the entire serial. It was... And also... Hartnell gives his typical, you know, his you know trademark kind of flub of the line by saying, "I tend to forget the delights and satisfaction." He was supposed to say of the gentle art of fisticuffs, but he says in satisfaction of the arts, and then he corrects himself and says the gentle art of fisticuffs. Well, that's Billy for you. Meanwhile, when we track back to Barbara, one parallel I noticed is how she keeps ending up in prison cells, and this really reminded me of the Reign of Terror. Me too. Which. You know, it was also written by Dennis Spooner, so he apparently likes putting Barbara in certain <coughs> situations. <laughs> yeah. But structurally, it reminded me a lot of it because you've got the doctor off on, you know, a fairly jaunty, fun mission. And then Ian and Barbara are just going through hell. Yeah. Barbara, instead of Susan there, there's that other woman who's trapped with her. And luckily, she doesn't get as dramatic as Susan does. And is simply like, all right, I'm a little bit sick. I'm fine. It's all going to be okay. No one could possibly get as dramatic as Susan does. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, hint, hint, maybe the show is trying to reemphasize Barbara and Ian's connection with themselves and have them slowly pull away from the doctor well, Vicky comes in and forms more of a uh, bond with the Doctor. It could be that. I also think that for this particular storyline, if you're not looking ahead to think that, oh, this might be something for future serials, it's also just a setup to have this amazing idea that things are happening in the same place and they keep missing each other. Mm -hmm. uh. And it, you know, it sets up that beautiful, beautiful thing. Can we just take a brief moment to mention, while he's being a galley slave, how terrible Ian's plan is? Oh, it's, it's basically, he, t he turns to uh, Delos and says, Should we do Get's help? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Quick. did anyone else pick up on that? Pretend to be dead. dead. That'll fool him. Oh, uh, get help. <laughs> But the sets, the sets no. looked great, I thought. Mm -hmm. I thought the, the set looked really, really good. The yeah, set was great. The music and the chanting uh, while they're on the boat. In, out, in, out. I thought I that was brilliant. Also, when the storm hits, when the camera is slowly zooming in and giving and like things are falling because, you know, to indicate, you know, the storm. I'm pretty sure the camera gets knocked by something that was falling in the set, just like right before the cut. I just felt that entire scene did a really great job with the sound and the lighting and throwing water onto everyone. It made me convinced that from a televisual perspective, they were in a storm. But you know what we didn't get? We didn't get a shirtless Ian. 
There were other shirtless men, but not shirtless Ian. So, Julie, are you only in it for the shirtless Ian? Oh, of course. Uh, and of course, you know, as a result, Ian Ian gets his broski. Delos. <laughs> you need to have that best friend who is willing to do everything for you. Same with Game G. So the Doctor and Vicky are off together. Ian gets his bro, and Barbara is basically left to fend for herself. That's kind of rough. Eventually, Varys from Games of Th- Game of Thrones shows up to help her out, so it's all good. <laughs> oh my gosh. I thought Tavius, Michael Peake, was fantastic all through this. Oh, he was great. He was phenomenal. He was the, again, he was very much like Varys, where he's just like, operating under the radar and he's trying to help where he can and he's you know like sitting here and doing all the subversion thing oh i i really enjoyed his character yeah i think the only difference with him and varus is i don't think it was ever implied that he was a eunuch also i don't think that varus is a christian either i'm sure someone True. will write a five thousand page fanfic about how he actually was a eunuch so it's okay i'm working on it <laughs> <laughs> He's great. I mean, at first, watching it with a, I guess, a, a fresh set of eyes, I was kind of thinking at first he comes across as a little creepy to Barbara. But his intentions on, I want to protect you, I, I want to look after you, they're genuine. Yeah. It doesn't seem nearly as sketchy as at first looks like. And he makes a very good point. There are worse things, how it could end for Barbara. Yeah. And that is the best case scenario to be under the Caesar, that's the best you could do. Except he's a randy bastard. Yeah, well, that <laughs> led to some very fun things. So, but speaking of Nero, the doctor gets to meet Nero in this episode. Yeah. And it's wonderful. <laughs> oh, it's so much fun. Derek Francis, who played Nero, is actually a really big name. He actually asked specifically to be in Doctor Who, and this part was written for him. That's kind of a thing. Somewhat appropriately, he would later go on to be in Up Pompeii, which was a kind of Roman sitcom-type comedy. His casting is just phenomenal in this. Actually, that is the one one of the few negatives I have about this serial. I did not care for the portrayal of Nero. I'm not a, like a Nero supporter. <laughs> How dare they cast this person? Uh, but no, I just, I don't know. I felt like the serial could have done with a little bit more drama and having him portrayed that way kind of undercuts a lot of the tension i felt yeah i mean if they Uh, hadn't made him comedic we'd be back to the keys of marinus yeah yeah we don't need that he was campy in my opinion yeah yeah Yeah. definitely campy i think last but not least ian is gonna be a gladiator forced to fight stock footage for the glory of the emperor i actually think the stock footage works fairly well in this context some shots worked some were very much hey look there's a lion at the zoo (laughs) (laughs) yeah the the one of the lion pacing in the cage not so much although to be fair if they were keeping a lion they'd probably keep it locked up so eh, semi-accurate it it just seemed very modern <laughs> the way the shot was, I just wanted to see some kid standing there with cotton candy. The lion was it. not. The lion was not wearing a toga. It was completely historically <laughs> accurate. So that brings us on to episode three: conspiracy. We basically start with Nero smashing his lyre over his servant's head. 
we get to a point where the doctor realizes that he's dealing with some sort of conspiracy. And this was very early on in the episode. And Vicky is just like, okay, have fun. I'm going to go now. She came on board for adventure and intrigue and all of these other things. And as soon as it starts getting good and there's a conspiracy, she's just like, all right, I'm going to go check out Rome. I think if you want intrigue, <laughs> you're going to hang out with a court poisoner. Yeah. They're going to know <laughs> all the intrigue. I actually love the court poisoner, Lacusta. She's just like, so, yeah, this is what I do. And no one hates me for it because it's just accepted. I, I loved her character, but I just found it strange that Vicky decides to just leave the doctor when he's like, oh, it's just getting good. On the flip side, we have Barbara being introduced to her new boss, which is Papaya, and of course Nero. And her first meeting with Papaya does not go well. She's oh, clearly yeah. jealous of her from the get-go, and she's almost immediately harassed by Nero. Papaya is just immediately, oh, Barbara's beautiful. It's this new woman. Obviously, she's out to get something. And then Nero, as he's constantly trying to avoid this guy who's trying to put the laurel on his head, <laughs> which is amazing. He just is, he's a crazy person. He's so. completely bonkers in this. I think it's in this episode, but I'm not sure where, where we have the Benny Hill chase. It is this episode. So this is this is where this episode, this story goes from being slightly comedic to just being an outright farce. <laughs> and I love it. Yeah, oh. sex. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay, so we have Barbara being chased by Nero, and then Vicky befriends the court poisoner. The doctor is wandering around, nearly finding Barbara again. And Ian's just kind of on the periphery. Yeah. Three of them are there, and one of them's not. I just love the staging of it. I thought they did a really good job of making it believable that they didn't actually interact with each other, but also that it was so close. They did that really well. There was a scene in, in the previous episode where Barbara was first going up for auction. Yes. Yeah. The, the staging that they did to make it believable was, was astounding. I mean, there's the scene where the doctor's looking for Nero and he's chasing after Barbara and the doctor peeks his head through the curtains and Nero's like, go away. Well, I like the what Don pointed out before. I thought it was uh, interesting in the previous episode how in, very cleverly they show, they lead us into Barbara's story after going from Dr. and Vicky's story by having the doctor notice that Vicky taking a notice of a slave auction and him not wanting her to see it. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting character de uh, development for the doctor and how he views Vicky. And also it, it smoothly transitions us to Barbara's plot. You know, most of our plot is to be harassed by Nero. I think Julie mentioned Nero's incredibly incompetent slave to Julinus. <laughs> yes. Who I think is wonderful. There's that scene where Nero and the and the doctor are just hanging out together in the steam room. Oh, that awesome that amazing shot of the full body going up Nero from his toes to to his face. Oh my god, that was amazing. And Tigelinus just pours water on him. <laughs> like he's just the worst. <laughs> But I feel so sorry for him as well. This entire episode is hilarious. They pitch it just right. 
It's got some drier moments, but also has that outright kind of Benny Hill slapstick. The ridiculous thing as well is that you know this guy who's following him around has probably been ordered that this is what you need to do as servant to Caesar, and Nero's just not letting him have it. It's that ridiculous idea of, well, you're here because of me, but I'm going to give you a bunch of nonsense and make it as difficult for you as possible and hate you at the same time. It's funny in the moment, but if you actually sit there and think about it, it's like, poor guy. And of course, he gets the worst ending. You know, Vicky accidentally, well, not accidentally, but switches the drinks from the poisoner and Nero, on the doctor's warning, has Tigellinus taste the drink and he dies. And Nero's just like, oh, well, zero shit's a given. Yeah, with a job like that, he's probably better off. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, eventually we get the doctor and Vicky at the banquet. You know, obviously the, the Doctor is expected because everyone thinks he's Maximus Battalion to play in front of Nero. And, oof, he he totally pulls the Emperor's New Clothes thing. It took me a second to realize what was happening. And no one wants to, no one wants to say anything. I thought his rendition of that John Cage piece was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really just gets to the heart of Nero's ego here. Because after all of that, Nero's like, how dare he make a fool of me? It's like, yeah, he's made a fool of you, not because he was good, but because everyone thinks he was good and he did nothing. It's wonderful. It then sets up, though, that Nero gets very upset. And we're going to start going to the arena and watching some fighting. Oh, and this is where we finally get the reunion of of Barbara and Ian. As fight choreography goes, it's actually not bad. No, they look that that fight scene looked really good. The direction was great, especially with all the limited space they had on that set for it. And we're left with the impression that Ian is actually about to die. You know, we think Delos is going to off him, particularly after the conversation they had beforehand, where Delos said, "Look, if it comes to it, I'm going to end you." But of course, that takes us into episode four, Inferno, in which Delos doesn't follow through on that promise and attacks Nero instead of killing Ian because, you know, that's clearly what you do if you want to live. Plot armor. Mm-hmm. Now, if Ian's actor had asked for, for more money or complained about the scripts... <laughs> no, that's, that's next they time would have around, Susan him right out of there. Welcome Delos aboard the TARDIS. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's awesome. I love Delos all through this. Everything obviously starts bubbling up this episode. We start to get all the plot elements coming together. Tabius is clearly realizes his time with the Emperor and his family might be coming to an end because he's like, hey, I'm going to help Barbara. And he's kind of hedging a little, but uh, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes at this point. Because of Tavius, the Doctor finds out about Nero's plans, right? I just love in that scene how the Doctor acts completely oblivious to everything. But his wordplay delightful and he's talking about uh how the lions will have something to sink their teeth into mm-hmm. and how it will be a roaring success it's like <laughs> he he plays dumb with tavius and he plays dumb with nero but he does that wonderful wordplay it's just magnificent and then he sets fires to nero's plans it it took a little bit of time but we finally got there we finally got to this doctor who is 
is enjoying being ridiculous and over the top and knowing that he's smarter than everyone else and just just laying it all out there and it's been great yeah it it really feels like this is the model right yes and when he's telling the doc you know when uh, the doctor tells him he's aware of his plans the way neuro's face just falls with disappointment he's like wait what it's it's wonderful absolutely wonderful and initially with the plans on fire Nero's like take him away kill him and and then he's rambling about how wonderful and brilliant it is because of course he finally gets to rebuild rome when he figures out how to do it when the doctor and vicky sit down to watch rome burn and enjoy it maybe a little more than was necessary <laughs> that was really i i had to rewind to go over that one more time was he pleased at the fact that he lit something on fire or he helped led to the fire or that he actually had a role in an historical event or both i mean we know from the uh giants episode he seemed very excited about creating a chemical fire so this might lead into this i mean yeah this this episode was very much a all right we're going to kind of bank on historical events and we're going to set Rome on fire. Let's, let's have this, let's try to, sh- you know, it's, it's also a, a spectacle. So something that they can kind of show off a little bit of, Oh, look at what we did. We made it look like this whole city was on fire. I, I love the, the, uh, the cut from the doctors giggling about how he may have been the inspiration to Nero's maniacal laughter. The way that transition is done, I think, is wonderful. Because it kind of raises a couple questions, right? Everyone, and he's, even without a historic, too much of a historical uh, knowledge, is maybe familiar with Nero being considered crazy. And so the show, by having the doctor laugh gleefully at the burning of Rome, and then slowly fade into Nero laughing maniacally at it, it kind of makes you wonder, what is the show trying to say to us about who the Doctor is? Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, while we like to think of the Doctor being the good guy, it's not always the case. I mean, we've seen him with a rock in his hand wanting to bludgeon somebody. So who's not to say that he also wants to see a city burn? You have to think about if the Doctor's perspective about historical events how would you feel about if you knew there was a group of people that would suffer through something and you know that you can't do anything to change it? After a while, if you've witnessed that or dealt with that situation enough, would you be so objective to be able to actually enjoy it from just the perspective of witnessing history, even though there's suffering involved? Sorry, I'm going really deep here. <laughs> you are. But it's something to consider. Yeah. Also, from a New Who perspective, he's used to seeing things burn after taking down Gallifrey. Well, I mean, I was thinking, to me, I thought this uh, it's really interesting to see this episode and co- contrast it with uh, the fires of Pompeii. Okay, I, I'm, I'm kind of shocked at this point, because we are almost to the end of this episode, and Antony hasn't mentioned Sandifer at all. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to do it, because somebody's got to. 
she mentions <laughs> that the doctor's giddy pyromaniac anarchist is an easier sell if one imagines him as being about 17 years old. <laughs> and I, I must mention, I think that's a really good take on it. Well, in Time Lord years, admittedly, Time Lords don't exist at this point. He certainly is. Yes. Huh. <laughs> and I think this leads us to just post-coitally dropping in on Barbara and Ian back at the villa. They just went through a very stressful situation. Emotions were high. Naturally, they have to bone each other senseless. <laughs> you could tell that Barbara and Ian, they went through a lot to get out of Rome and, and not burn and things like that. Like You could tell that that was a stressful situation for them. Versus, you know, the doctor and Vicky just watching from 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 far away. So I, I did like that contrast. And then we even get even more of it when they finally meet back together. I love that they get back to the villa. They clearly have this conversation. Then they go and shower, change, have sex and <laughs> and then head back and are in this post coital mood. And that's when the Doctor and Vicky get back. Is like once they've like clearly detensed, and they're like, "Oh, you haven't been anywhere. Cool, we're back. What's up?" And they just they don't do anything to be like, "Yeah, we've been away too." They're just like, "Hey, sup?" I feel like the show is intentionally trying to pair off Barbara and Ian and pull them away from the Doctor. I don't yeah. know why you keep saying I mean, this. Think about it, like. What brought Barbara and Ian to the doctor? Susan. Susan's gone. Right now, they are two people without a common, without the common thing that brought them there. They are together with a crazy pyromaniac elderly man and a woman, uh, a young woman from the future. So far in the future that uh, she had no understanding of any of the concepts they mentioned in the previous episode. So I think this is something done intentionally by the show. And I mean, it also makes sense. I mean, they're they have the same similar backgrounds. They would, of course, like eventually get closer as, as they go through all these adventures. I think there's a difference, though, between Ian and Barbara becoming close and then being fully separated fr from the doctors. I also think they were very deliberately separated in this story to give the doctor time with Vicky. Right? She's the new one. Yeah. So, and by this stage. You know, it's been decided that rather than Ian being the star of the show, it's the Doctor. So they're giving Vicky time with the star of the show after introducing her in just the previous serial. That's my take on it. That, for the most part, wraps it up. They have a little, kind of like at the beginning of the serial, where they're happy little family who are just hanging out and enjoying life. They kind of show a little bit more of that. And we're left with that cliffhanger of the TARDIS being dragged down by a mysterious force. <sighs> One thing I wanted to talk about was how historically accurate actually is this? Now, Don, you've clearly read Sand of Her, so you've got some of this, I think. I love the idea, but it's, it's set in 64 AD. That's very specifically stated in the story. There are a couple of things that really bug me as a classicist the first is the fact the the notion that nero deliberately burned down rome everything suggests he was actually about 20 miles away in antium uh when it happened and had nothing to do with it 
The second is he actually outlawed all the gladiatorial stuff. And then I I, I want to say Lawrence Miles and Tap Wood put this best when they talk about Tavius and his cross. At a time when crucifixion was a standard form of execution, wearing a wooden cross around your neck would be like having a tiny medallion of an electric chair. <laughs> they then go on to say, though this idea may catch on in Texas, given time. <laughs> which I thought was wonderful. But the the point stands, in general, the, the idea of this very much plays into, like, historical stereotypes, but isn't that historically accurate. Another one that I mentioned earlier, the thumbs-down signal from the emperor wasn't necessarily a sign that a gladiator should die. The thumbs-up actually meant that he should die. And if he was to, going to be spared, then the thumb would be kept inside the clenched fist. But Nero was a sensitive soul, and actually suspended the combats anyway because they offended his delicate sensibilities as an aesthete. So he was like, nah, I'm an artist. This isn't happening anymore. To hell with the people of Rome. This very deliberately does not stick to historical accuracy. Sending things up and it's doing it because it can. I may complain as someone who has studied the classics about that, but it's, it's doing it for a reason. So, metrics? Ian Murder Count. I think no. Since this takes place in Italy, I'll give the Eurovision thing of null point. <laughs> <laughs> Camp count. I'm going to nominate Nero for this. I, I felt like he was very over the top. Seconded. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Camp count one for season two. We're already doing better than season one on that. The Barbara murder count. Nothing. This sustains as one for the season. But we got a Dr. Pyro count started now. We're up to two for this season. All right. So with our metrics out the way, let's vote. We'll start with you, Riley. As we know, I'm not exactly a big fan of historical episodes um, because one of the reasons that I feel like it stifles the unpredictability of the plot because they have to follow historical facts. But there's so much great character development and work with our TARDIS crew now, we really get to see Vicky like outside of her origin story, and we get to see her relationship with the rest of the crew, and everyone gets split up and has their... It's basically the story divides up into two pairs, and then the two pairs get split off even more, and you get to see... Everyone gets a moment, everyone gets some time, the sets look great, the music's good, and um, I'm not, like I said, not a big fan of the actor who played Nero, but it was required to be done in a silly way. So I would say I give it eight Gallic sleeves out of 10. All right, Don. I liked this one. I, I originally went into it not feeling terribly sure, but by the end, I, I, I came out feeling good about what they'd done, even if it wasn't in any way historically accurate. You had a lot of different tones going on between the doctor's story and then Barbara and Ian's. But it all came together rather well. I like the fact that at the end, the Doctor and Vicky never even knew what happened to Ian and Barbara. So I thought that was a very cool and different take, because I kept expecting you know, the Doctor to see Barbara and to be instrumental in getting Barbara and Ian's freedom, but it never happened. It was really these two separate yet intertwining stories. So I'm going to give it 
eight smashed liars over the head out of ten. All right, Julie. As opposed to Riley, I tend to enjoy period pieces. I, I don't really need to see historical accuracy per se. Uh, so I'm not going to be very harsh on that for this episode. I really enjoyed this serial. We got that wonderful plot of somehow they just can't, they just never cross each other's paths, even though they're like right next to each other, which I think to make that work without it seeing, you know, made to be that way, uh, I thought was really good. I enjoyed the little bit over top Nero. There were some great camera angles and, you know, shots and things like that. And they just seemed like an actual family, which was nice to see from a TARDIS crew. So I will also give it eight poisoned goblets of time. All right. So from my perspective, and I, I'll freely admit I'm biased on this. This is a childhood favorite. I got the VHS for Christmas when I was maybe seven or eight years old. Much It came in a double pack with the rescue. So I have a lot of nostalgia for both of those stories. I love the comedy flair to this. I love the classical setting. I love the dynamics between the main cast. I really, really enjoy the portrayal of Nero as a bit of a buffoon and the rest of the supporting cast, I think, are just outstanding. So for me, I'm going to give this nine sesteri out of ten. We will see you next time round when we will be discussing the web planet. Have a great night. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Philippek, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Maximus Petulance, was recorded on Wednesday, May the 29th, 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on your preferred podcasting app. And always remember, sexual harassment is never okay, even if you are the Roman Emperor. <laughs>